During Silk and Slopes Tech Summit 2018, we were pleased to be joined by New York Times bestselling author J.D. Vance. We recorded his presentation and are excited to present the audio version now. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage the CEO of Banyan, Miss Kareen Clark. Welcome back. Everybody's like still eating. Guys, we're gonna have fun today. My treat to introduce the next guest to you. How many of you read this book, Hillbilly Elegy? Not gonna clap even? Okay, get on your phone right now, Amazon, Hillbilly Elegy. Because I'm gonna bring out this author. Let me tell you a little bit about him. In this book, when I read it, there's some really funny bits, but there's other parts super hard for me to get through. Um, part of it's because my father super poor. Father died in World War II. His mother was an alcoholic, and so he had really tough, tough beginnings. But he changed the course of history for our family because he educated himself and his children and made sure that we became good people. And even though my mother wanted me to be a hairdresser, I'm still here today because of the efforts of not only both my parents, but the sacrifices of my father. JD has a similar story. We're going to talk to him about the book a bit, but we're also going to talk about some very interesting things that he has done. So he was born very poor circumstances in Ohio, raised by his mama and his papa, uh, graduated from high school, which was a rare thing where he was from. He uh, decided to join the Marines, kind of changed the trajectory of his life, and then um, he served in Operation Iraqi Freedom, came back, went to Ohio State University, Go Buckeyes, yeah. My father graduated from Ohio State University. You see the parallels? Went to Ohio State University and then went to Yale Law School. Graduated, worked for a very large corporate law firm. He's a principal in a venture firm, Mithril Capital. He's also a partner in Revolution. And he works with this organization called Rise of the Rest, which is so fascinating. So please join me in welcoming our distinguished guest, J.D. Vance. Let's go up here. Let's go on. We're here? Okay. Yeah, let's go up here. You're here? Yeah, sit here. All right. So, J.D., I didn't tell these guys that this book was on New York Times bestseller list, still there two years, and I didn't tell them that number one in the state of Ohio, most of the other states had um, Handmaiden's Tales number one, except for t uh, Ohio and Utah. Utah, Brandon Sanderson, go figure. But um, <laughs> when you, at the beginning of this book, you say the fact that this book exists is absurd. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to this point, how we got here? Because you're kind of a big deal. I don't know about that, but yeah, I, I said in the beginning that the book is absurd because you think about it, it says memoir right there on the cover. And I think a memoir is something that you write when you're looking back on all that you've accomplished. And of course, I hadn't accomplished very much when, when I wrote the book. And it's also just a little bit weird, you know, when the book came out, I was 31 years old, 
and hopefully this, uh, this life of mine is not even halfway over yet, so it's kind of weird to look back on something when, when you're still a pretty young guy. So that's the sense in which I, I said that it was absurd. But what, what I think is made it at least worth writing to me was that the, the story is, while not super common, it's, it's also not an incredibly rare experience, this idea of coming from a working class background, maybe being exposed to institutions and educational opportunities and work opportunities that are pretty foreign to a lot of the people that you grew up around, and then just working through, you know, how, how much do I belong to the home that I came from? How much do I belong to the place that I ended up spending my, most of my time in? And, and the fact that, you know, I, I, I wrote it down and a lot of people were at least interested in reading about it and thinking about it suggests that it's not so uncommon of a story. And it, it hit a chord with so many people. Was that surprising to you? Because it's like, like it came at the perfect time. Yeah, it, it definitely did. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of folks who attached a political significance to the book, and so we're reading it in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, which is always a little bit weird just because Donald Trump's name doesn't appear in the book, Hillary Clinton's name doesn't appear in the book. It's not an especially political book. You probably know that as, as someone who, who, who read it. But w what is pretty funny about the, the fact that a lot of people have read the book at this point is that you know, I don't know that the book would have been the same if I had gone into it knowing how many people would have read it. You know, there's a lot of pretty brutally honest personal stories. There's a lot of pretty hairy detail about the way that I grew up and, and about my family. I was talking to my uncle about this relatively recently, and he is a pretty private guy and was just talking about what it meant to him to have all these personal stories out there. And I said, you know, Uncle Jimmy, you were pretty open with me. I told you I was going to put this yeah. in a book, and you were very open with me. And he said something to the effect of, well, I didn't know that anybody was going to read it. <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of people in my family are having that same basic reaction of, yeah, it's really easy to be open until you recognize that somebody's going to read it. So it, it's, it's almost good that I expected the book not to be as much of a commercial success, just because I think it would have changed a, a little bit, just because I would have been a little bit more cloistered and a little bit more closed off. Well, uh, the reason I'm pushing these guys to buy the book is because you, you finish the book, you're a changed person, right? So for me, my, my husband's read it, my kids have read it, because it's, I needed my sons, who are children of privilege, which I wasn't, to understand that not everyone has an easy life. And I think that resonates with this crowd in that a lot of, we have a lot of students in the audience, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in the audience, and they came from nothing and built these companies or trying to build these companies. Sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your transition from New York Times bestselling author, and you're kind of a big deal, but um, to now this, how, does, how do you turn from what you've been doing, or this, which is so great, to now you're focused on communities like this. So tell us about your organization and what it does. Sure. So when the book was published, I was actually working as an investor in Silicon Valley. I was working at a venture capital fund co-founded by, uh, by, by Peter Thiel, who's you know, the very, very well-known Silicon Valley investor. And even when I was out there, I had a special interest in companies that were outside of the classic coastal tech scenes, Cambridge, New York City, and Silicon Valley, just because it, it occurred to me in talking to some of the investors who lived and worked in Silicon Valley that they weren't necessarily looking outside of the places where they lived and worked to find good companies. And as a person whose entire job is to try to find opportunities that are undervalued, I just always thought, you know, maybe there's a geographic arbitrage opportunity. There are places where investors aren't looking as much as they should be. And maybe we can go out there and find interesting opportunities that way. 
Um, that was not the focus of what I did, but it was just really a curiosity. And after the book came out, I was actually in D.C. to do Face the Nation, I think the CBS uh, Sunday morning talk show. And I, I happened oh, to get... just that, just Face the Nation. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was facing the nation or get, getting ready to face the nation. And I um, interacted with Steve Case on Twitter. And we just exchanged the messages back and forth. And then he said, you know, I live in D.C. You're going to be in D.C. Why don't we sit down and, and talk? And that was just the first of many conversations where we realized that we had this real shared interest in the idea that there were exciting entrepreneurs, exciting opportunities outside of the classic tech scenes. And we should be doing things to try to find those businesses and support those businesses and even invest in those businesses. Now, Steve had already laid a lot of the groundwork here, right? So the rise of the rest, which I'm now a part of, had been going for a few years, and it was primarily a lot of programming around entrepreneurship and investing. So, you know, we'd, we'd take the bus tour to a place like Salt Lake City or to a place like Denver, meet a lot of entrepreneurs, try to connect the entrepreneurs with civic leaders and local business leaders and so forth, and really just elevate the fact that there were these exciting tech companies outside of the places where people expected there to be exciting tech companies. And so there was already a pretty solid foundation laid. But when I joined, the conversation was, how do we take this to the next step? How do we take this from something that connects entrepreneurs and connects investors to some of these non-coastal tech sectors and actually invest in these businesses in a more institutionalized and more ambitious way? And so what came out of that was the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, which I'm now the managing partner of, and we're hoping to put $150 million of capital into companies like, like many of those that are represented by founders here. So $150 million of capital for companies like companies here. Anybody need that? So one of the great things about Silicon Slopes is we really try to work with entrepreneurs and founders to make sure that they don't take capital too soon, that they don't take too sure. much capital, but that they have access to capital. Because one of the complaints of the past, because I'm old, was that um, it was tough for companies to actually get money. Yeah. So what kind of companies do you look at? I mean, what, what are you looking for? Well, so it, it's almost easier to say what we're not looking for because what we're looking for is pretty broad. Okay. So what we're not looking for is companies that are headquartered in New York City, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Just because we think those markets are relatively oversaturated, there are, there are, of course, a lot of great businesses in Silicon Valley, but if you're a good business in Silicon Valley, odds are you're going to be able to find some access to capital. Uh, we're not investing in a couple of sectors. We're not investing in, uh, not investing in the marijuana sector just because what? it's fraught with regulatory difficulties and we don't necessarily want to go down that we pathway. That we don't have that I, here. <laughs> I've heard. And I was, I was in Denver last, uh, I was in Denver yesterday. They have a lot of that there. Yeah. But we are, and we're also not looking at uh, the biopharmaceutical sector. So you know, a company that's trying to get a drug through phase one, phase two, phase three regulatory trials, just because I've actually done some biotechnology investing, and my view is that to do it well, you really have to have a portfolio-based approach that focuses on those sorts of investments, and that's not what we're doing with Rise of the Rest. But pretty much everything else we're interested in. We're interested in looking in those businesses. Now, our, our model is a little bit unique because what we, what we thought a lot about is how do we go and invest in good businesses, of course, and try to earn a good return for our investors and try to have a really positive impact as venture capitalists? 
uh, but also how can we plug into the local ecosystems that are out there without necessarily being competitive, without folks looking at the, uh, around themselves and saying, well, we don't want these guys to come in. They're going to take deal flow away from us. They're going to take opportunities away from us. And so we've really set the fund up in a way that we're supportive, not just to local entrepreneurs, but also to local investors. And what I mean by that is we're not going to take board seats. We're not going to lead investment rounds. We're going to work with local partners in Salt Lake City, in Denver, in Cincinnati, Ohio, with investors that we have good relationships with. They're going to take the board seats, but we're going to be supportive. We're going to help make round sizes bigger. We're going to help entrepreneurs have more access to capital. And we're going to lend the Rise of the Rest network to what they're doing. But hopefully, and I, and I think what we've seen thus far, is that people look at us as a real value add. They say, these are people who are going to help me fill out a round. These are people who are going to bring their network to bear to make it easier for us to support our companies and our portfolio. And consequently, we're finding really cool opportunities to get plugged into local, local ecosystems in a way that maybe we wouldn't if we were coming in trying to compete with everybody for deals. So if we narrow it down a little bit, because you've got a broad space you're looking at, um, what are those interesting opportunities? What do they look like? So what do the founders look like? What do the companies look like? Are, there, are they different or are you like more interested in people that are doing something brand new? Yeah, so, so it, it, it's definitely a mix. I mean, the, both the exciting piece of what we're doing and the challenge is because we're defining our mandate so broadly, we're seeing really exciting new things, but we're also seeing things that, you know, traditional B2B SaaS plays and so forth. So it's, it's definitely a mix. There, there are a few things that I'll say about our approach. So, so first of all, I should say we're doing seed to Series A in, investing, at least as an initial check size. So almost all of our initial investments into a company will be in rounds of, of under $10 million. That's not a hard and fast rule, but that's how most of it's, it's going to work. So we're looking for relatively early new companies, a lot of risk, folks who really need a lot of support. Uh, and obviously, we're hopeful that we can provide some of that support. A second thing that I'm, I'm noticing, and, and, and this is a really fascinating piece of what we're, what we're doing, is that, you know, Steve Case, you know, my, my partner in this, has been investing in Rise of the Rest Cities just personally for the past three or four years. And so about 50 companies, he invested in about 50 companies um, from when he started until we launched the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund. So of those companies, about 40% had been led by women entrepreneurs or people of color. 40%? Now, 40%. Now, not... 40%, not hang on. 40% led by women. Or people of color. And, and, and what's interesting about that is it's not like we went into our investment decisions saying, you know, we, we really want to prioritize, um, you know, female-led entrepreneurs or, or people of color. Not that, you know, not that that's a bad thing, but that wasn't the lens through which we were viewing our investments. But it's just happened because, as it turns out, if you get outside of the traditional Silicon Valley networks and you start plugging into local ecosystems, the founders don't always look like traditional Silicon Valley founders, at least the, the mental image that we often have of them. So that's something I'm really proud of, and I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we're looking at places and, frankly, we're looking at people that maybe don't necessarily have access uh, to venture capital. And of course, there, there is admittedly a self-interested piece of this. You know, our really strong view is not just that we're going to do a lot of good, not just that we're going to create a lot of jobs, but also that our LPs are going to make money because we're investing in places that deserve to get invested. We're investing in entrepreneurs that, you know, that, that really can do a lot of good with the capital that we're providing 
but they're not necessarily getting it from the traditional sources. So to, to, to me, this is a classic win-win. We're going to get to do a lot of good, but we're also going to do well. I'm blown away by that percentage, so good for you. Uh, because there's so many, especially women that I work with, feel like it's, it's really tough for them to get capital, so much so that uh, one of the women that I work with, uh, there was a, a venture, a gentleman that said, hey, we just don't invest in companies led by women. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that guy's a caveman. Can you even say that? I, I thought you were I, allowed I thought it was to say a that. Joke. I thought it was a joke, <laughs> but apparently not. So I, I should say, hey, don't take any money from him, right? Sure. So, JD, we have a lot of students here. Uh, we work with a lot of universities. I told you that there's 300,000 college students within a 50-mile radius of my office. And so Silicon Slopes, we've been working with universities and we're now starting to work with high schools to get more young people to see themselves as entrepreneurs. So you're, you're in a great position to give these guys advice and talk to them <laughs> about, because you're an old guy now, sorry. That's, I but am. Give them, like, what, what would you tell them? Because I talk to them a lot, but they're sick of hearing from me. Like, what would you tell them? So there, there are a few things. I'll go from really specific, narrow advice to some slightly uh, more, more ambitious pieces of advice. So, so three things. First is that one of the best pieces of advice I ever got, and I, I was a political science and philosophy undergrad major. I went to law school. There was not an obvious business background, or you know, if, if you looked at my educational credentials, you wouldn't say, this is a guy who's gonna go work in venture capital. But the best piece of advice I, I got about what classes to take is somebody once told me, make sure you take an accounting class. Make sure you know what a balance sheet is, what an income statement is. Make sure you know how you can read one. It's not an especially difficult task. It's not like rocket science. But just knowing the basics of how accounting works is really, really important, even if, like me, you're a humanities major. That's, that's one piece of advice. Uh, the second piece of advice is that a lot of people see, and I, and I have a lot of conversations where someone will come up to me and say, I've got this great idea, it's gonna do X, Y, and Z, here's the reason there's a market, but I just need some money to hire some software engineers to turn this idea into a business. Well, in, in my view, in almost every single case, you can test whether there's really a market for that idea before you ever hire a software engineer. Software is something that le lets you scale things, it makes things easier, but if there's a service that's really of value that software will make easier to deliver, then in a lot of cases, you can at least go out there and test whether this service is actually, at the end of the day, valuable. So, so one example is that a guy came up to me and said, I really need $250,000 so I can hire some software engineers because I want to take an educational, um, I, I basically want to catalog the skills that are necessary to work in certain industries, and then I want to connect people to those skills. And I said, what you should do is go to a community college Maybe they're not even going to pay you anything, but say, I want to do this. Would you find this useful? It's actually really easy to find out whether the thing that you want to do is going to solve some problem that exists in the world. And don't think that you have to hire a software engineer to really take that next step. Uh, you can execute before you ever get a software engineer. You may not have a profitable business, but you can at least figure out if there's demand for what you're trying to do. And, and the, the third piece of advice I'd give uh, something uh, somebody gave to me, probably the, the best piece of advice I, I've gotten about how to work in, in entrepreneurship and investing and so forth, it was don't necessarily think that you have to be the founder to be an entrepreneur. Uh, if you are the sixth person 
at a really exciting company that someone else had the idea, someone else went out and raised the capital, but you can be on the ground floor of an exciting early stage company, you will learn a ton about how to be an entrepreneur. You'll do a ton of good work. You'll have different tasks thrown at you from different angles all the time. So I, I encourage a lot of people to think about you know, not just ways they can go and found a business that's really exciting, but how they can be that third or fourth hire in a business that's, that's just getting off the ground that really needs folks to support them. That's, an, that's, that's a way to get plugged into the entrepreneurial ecosystem, to get plugged into how to build a company from the ground up without necessarily having that blockbuster idea. Because you know a lot of people have great skills, they want to do interesting things, they're just not sure that their idea is the thing that's going to take them to the next level, well, why not help somebody else with their idea? It'll help you figure out whether your idea may be good downstream, or you may end up being the fourth employee at a blockbuster company. Someone, someone told me very recently, um, the 35th employee at Facebook did a lot better and had a lot more interesting of a career than a lot of folks who are the first employees of a company that completely goes out of business. Now, I think that there's a ton of value to being the first employee in a company that goes out of business, but there's a ton of value to being the 35th employee at a place like Facebook that has explosive growth too. Well, I think there's something to be said about, you have someone who's got a great idea, but they don't have the strong back to actually pull it off. And when you have the marriage of a great idea and someone who has a passion for sure. solving that problem, so I think that's terrific advice. Be paying attention to what is the problem that you're trying to solve, and when it resonates with people, then you know then you might have the beginning of something. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. you know we have this vibrant ecosystem here. Sure. Because like, welcome to ten thousand of my closest <laughs> friends. Um, Rise of the Rest actually did a bus tour through Salt Lake City last year, mm -hmm. and I noticed you're wearing some pretty interesting swag. Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi. So yeah. Rise of the Rest, Steve Case, stopped at Cotopaxi last year. Uh, Cotopaxi, uh, uh, Davis Smith, uh, the CEO of the company, Gear for Good. They do really cool outwear, outdoor wear. Sure. Yeah, I need like 5X of their size, though, because <laughs> it's like made for Filipinos, but this looks good on you. <laughs> Truly. Um, what, we've got this great community here. We've got all these companies, consumer companies. We've got tech companies, consumer tech companies. So what advice do you have for us? Because we've re received tremendous success and attention, and it's grown really fast. So sure. the board is worried about how can we keep this going? So what can you tell us about keeping this going? Because we don't want to be the rise of the rest that never rose again, right? We want to be like the top. We've got to be the best. Sure, sure. Well, first, let me say something about Cotopaxi, which is a company I really like. If, if anybody has a small size Cotopaxi jacket, one of my marching orders for this trip is to take one home for my wife. So I've got to do that. I've got to check that box before I leave. I'll get you one. And, okay. I All know right, people. Thank you. All right, perfect. Small? Are you sure she doesn't need extra large? Because it's really a little bit. <laughs> See, this is a large, and it fits me reasonably well. I, mean, I look at myself up, up, up here and think to myself, I need to, take, I need to eat a salad for lunch today. No, no. It, it, who knew it added 100 pounds? I know. Seriously. Um, but the, a, a few thoughts on ecosystems and, and what makes an ecosystem especially successful. So one is we talk a lot at Rise of the Rest about community building and supporting the ecosystem and not just being a business that exists within a given city, but a business that really gives back to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. 
And, and, and at a certain level, we're really interested in economic development. We really want places like Salt Lake City to have a vibrant entrepreneurial economy because I think there's a lot of evidence that it creates a lot of good jobs, that it creates downstream positive effects for some of the people that are, that are struggling economically, like I wrote about in my book. But it's also very important if you're a startup founder trying to scale a business to have that business in a city where if you end up don't do it, not doing especially well, you still have opportunities for the employees who come and work for you. I talked to somebody at Denver yesterday and, talked to, and, and what he told me is that when, when Denver reached a critical mass where there, there wasn't just one high growth company, but there were six, seven, eight high growth companies such that if he recruited a really hotshot VP of sales from Seattle, that VP of sales would know, one, this is an interesting business, but two, if after a few years, this business just doesn't work out, we're not able to take it to that terminal exit stage, there's still going to be something else here for me. So building an ecosystem where there are a number of good businesses isn't just important for the ecosystem. It's not just important for the community. It's important for the individual business being able to attract and retain talent. The, the fact that Salt Lake City has a lot of cool companies makes it easier for one Salt Lake City company to bring a hotshot VP of sales or digital marketing or whatever the case may be. So, so broadly speaking, the, the, the ecosystems that have founders and entrepreneurs and third and fourth employees who are thinking about how to give back, who are thinking about how to connect one founder to another, connect one person who needs a job to another person who's hiring, the folks who are, in other words, trying to build that network density in their startup ecosystem, those are the ones who are doing really well. And, and, and the folks who become, frankly, a little bit too insular and a little bit too selfish, head down, I'm going to do my entrepreneur thing and not worry about what's going on in the broader ecosystem, I think those folks end up, end up suffering a little bit and the ecosystem suffers in the process. Uh, a second point that I'd make is that high-quality entrepreneurial ecosystem entrepreneurial ecosystems have support from civic leadership and community leadership. You know, it's, it's not just about the founders, it's not just about the investors, it's also about government officials and nonprofit organizations. It's about people who are trying to help folks get from that stage where they just have an idea to they can file the paperwork to build a business and then they can raise the capital to further build that business and they can go in, out and hire people to keep on building that business. So I think engagement from the broader, uh, the, the, the broader civic uh, leadership community is really important. And something we were talking about uh, back, backstage that we, we see in Utah and we really like it is the collegiality, right? Um, it, it, it's, there's enough growth to go around there's enough opportunity to go around so long as people aren't clawing each other's eyes out and trying to climb that ladder by stepping on somebody else. And I think that, that's really important. It goes back to this point about building network density, uh, but the ecosystems that do really well recognize that they're not competing really against each other. They're, they need to be supportive of each other. They're fundamentally on the same team. Um, so so, so th th those, are, those are a few things. One last point I'll, I'll make about this is that it's important to have good, solid local investors. I think Salt Lake City definitely has that. There are some, some high-quality early-stage investors that are out there. Uh, but, but, but there are a ton of different ways to mobilize local angel networks, local family offices, local corporate and strategic partners to get capital flowing into these ecosystems so that these businesses can build. And, and it, it's definitely extraordinary to see how different some cities are 
compared to others in mobilizing the local capital base to really get involved. If your ecosystem is 100% dependent on outside, outside capital, it's going to be a lot tougher to build it. If your ecosystem can build from a solid foundation of local investors, then I think you're, you're really on, on the right path. Well, I'm glad you mentioned um, how collegial we are because that comes up a lot. People are surprised the abundance mentality. The, you know, the, the Silicon Slopes board, these guys could be um, scarce with each other, but they're not. And then also, I want to give a shout out to Kickstart Seed Fund. Yesterday uh, was an announcement, their 10-year anniversary here. Yep. They've invested in over 100 companies, and so really proud that they've been part of Silicon Slopes, but also that, you know, it kind of feels like we've like, grown up together. Sure. So sure. let's tie it all back to this book. Uh, one of the heart-wrenching things for me about the book is that you really kind of dissect the American dream and how the American dream is not the same for everyone. So kind of bring it back down to is our last comment about what is it that we can do to make sure that there really is an opportunity for American dream re really in every part of our community? Well, obviously a big part of what's going on in Hillbillyology and a big part of what happened in the community that I came from is that the, the, the solid foundational blue-collar economy that could give most people at least a chance at a middle-class job disappeared really quickly over the course of generation. Now, there are a ton of reasons, automation, technology, trade, so forth, that have sort of led to these, these really rapid changes in our economy. And I think a lot of them, they're impossible to unwind even if you wanted to. Uh, but, but let me... The, the reason I think that this matters and the reason I think that these entrepreneurial ecosystems matter is because they are an important piece of rebuilding and reconnecting a lot of folks to middle-class, high-quality work. Uh, it's important, of course, to have a livable wage. It's important, of course, to have a job that you feel proud of. And I think we really understate that when we talk about these good jobs, it's not just a paycheck. It's not just what you're bringing home at the end of the day, that that's obviously important. It's also being part of a workplace that is meaningful, being part of a community that's meaningful, uh, actually having something that you go and do every day where you can come home and look your kid in the eye and say, I, I built something. Uh, that, that lack of isolation, that presence of purposeful, dignity-enhancing work is something that's really important. And, and why does that matter for the startup ecosystem? I mean, it's, it, it's relatively obvious, of course. If you guys are successful, you will create a lot of jobs and you'll employ a lot of people. Uh, but it's not just about the folks that you're employing. One of the things that we consistently find when you see vibrant startup ecosystems is that there are a lot of positive downstream effects. I've seen estimates that in Silicon Valley, every single Google employee ends up supporting five to nine additional jobs from outside of Google just because that's how positive the primary impact of having a Google wage earner is in, in that part of the country. I, I, I talked uh, not long ago with Scott Dorsey, who is the founder of a company called Exact Target in Indianapolis, which was sold to Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce is doubling down on Indianapolis and doubling down on Exact Target. They now have, I think it's 2,500 employees in Indianapolis at the Exact Target Salesforce location. Now think about that. That's 2,500 people with dignified, high-quality work. If each one of those people is supporting a family of, on average, three, that's an additional 7,500 people who are being supported by that work, who have a parent who has a good job. And then if you take the Google statistic of five to nine jobs downstream, then you're talking about 
tens of thousands of people potentially who can have their lives transformed by a dynamic, high growth, broadly shared economy. And if, if you think about what you guys are doing, I, I think at a fundamental level, at a societal and cultural level, that's what you're doing, is you're building work that's high growth, that is dynamic, and that can support a much, much broader base of economic activity. That's something we really need. Unfortunately, a lot of jobs that exist in our society don't have that positive downstream effect. Uh, 50 years ago, it was the old manufacturing economy. I think in 50 years, it will be the high-tech, high-growth economy that's reflected by uh, the folks that we see in this room. So keep on building it because it doesn't just have a positive effect for you all, though it certainly will. It's also going to have a positive effect for people who need high-quality, high dignified work. And, and that, to me, is how it connects back to Hillbilly Elegy. And that's what I found as well. So, JD, I'm such a fan, girl. Thank you so much. This was, The Economist said this is one of the most important reads of 2016, and it was just a terrific book for me. Thank, thank you. you for coming to Silicon Slopes, and thank you for signing my book. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen.